Thank you for tuning in to the Vigilance Press podcast. My name is James Dossie. I'm the owner of Vigilance Press. Today's guest is a very special inspiration for me. This is Chris Pramus, who uh, is the owner and publisher at uh, Green Ronin. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I have to say up front, do all, get all my butt kissing out of the way. Um, <laughs> Green Ronin is really what got me into publishing. Um, as, as in terms of gaming, uh, specifically with Mutants and Masterminds and a third-party license, but also just looking at the quality of your products and saying, I want to do that. Well, thanks. That's, that's, uh, that's flattering. So I really do appreciate your time and you joining us. You have a very special product or project that's gone live a couple of weeks ago um, uh, in, in partnership with Geek and & Sundry and, and Will Wheaton. They've been doing a role-playing game uh, internet show called Titan's Grave. We're going to talk about that and the system that they're running, kind of from Green Ronins and starting back at the beginning. Um, how long have you been involved with role playing games, and what kind of got you started? Because I know you posted something on Facebook today that gave me flashbacks. So I know you've been doing yeah. this for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I started role playing when I was ten years old, um, and that was 1979. Um, my brother and I got the uh, the D and D white boxed set, um, and you know we didn't really have the background to understand it because that original D and D product sort of came out of um, of the '60s or early '70s wargaming scene, and there are a lot of sort of unspoken assumptions in it, which to me, being ten, was just like, well, there's something cool in here, but I can't quite figure out how you play this game actually. <laughs> um, so we went on and we bought the um, the Holmes um, basic boxed set, and then shortly thereafter we got the AD and D books, and that was when we really figured it out and uh, and started to uh, to play role playing games, um, and then because uh, that I started getting Dragon Magazine, and and that was the thing that uh, sort of broadened my horizons into the larger hobby. Um, it was from there that I, you know, discovered all sorts of role-playing games. I got into wargaming and miniatures gaming that way. So Dragon was really like a kind of a gateway drug, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, uh, Dragon was a thing that uh, introduced me to the idea that there were other people out there playing, like that there was conventions and things out there. Yeah, they used to uh, they used to include the entire program book for Gen Con inside mm-hmm. Dragon. And so even though I didn't get to go... Um, you know, uh, till well, I I'd been gaming for ten years. By the time I went to my first Gen Con, you know, I would I would read over that booklet and look at all the games being run and be like, oh man, one day I'm gonna go to Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was uh, it was a lot longer. I didn't go to my first Gen Con until uh, I want to say five six years ago. Yeah, I just I went on a lark. Um, you know, I I was depressed because I had broken up with a girlfriend and was like looking for some way to distract myself. And uh, I was like, well, I'll go to Gen Con. And uh, that was 1989. Um, and unbeknownst to me, that was also the first year that Nicole, uh, Green Renee's general manager, um, and also mm-hmm. my wife, uh, that was also her first year at Gen Con. Um, and then we have each been every year since then. When did you form your first company, and how did that lead to Green Ronin? Um, so I had started to do freelance writing in 1993 
um, I was in grad school in New York City at the time, and I started getting paying work, uh, which actually had a, an ill effect on my graduate degree because I was like, well, I could write this paper for school or I could do this thing I'm going to get paid for. <laughs> <So> <laughs> never actually ended up taking my graduate degree, but I got a career, so I guess it's okay. Um, so, uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, like many people do, I got the bug to try to start my own thing. So I started a company that was called Ronin Publishing. Um, and that was a partnership between me, uh, and my brother, uh, who largely does, um, sort of political work, but very briefly, he thought maybe it'd be fun to do a game company. Uh, and then uh, my one of my old gaming friends named Neil. And so uh, I moved uh, back to the Boston area, which is where I was from, and we all got an apartment together in Somerville, um, and we started trying to do the company there. And uh, we bought a role-playing game called The Whispering Vault um, from a company called Pariah Press out of Chicago that I had done freelance work for. Um, and they were gonna, you know, they, they were basically winding down their business. So we bought that game from them, um, figuring that would sort of kickstart us as a publishing company. Um, and then we also ended up publishing um, a source book for the Feng Shui RPG, which I had written for its original publisher, but that company was going down the tubes, and I secured a license to publish the book I had written for them. Um, which is, complicated anyway um <laughs> mm -hmm. so, uh, so that went on for uh about two years i guess and halfway through it um i applied for a job at wizards of the coast um and got the job and started working there so then um you know it it sort of made sense to kind of wind things down because Things weren't going that well, frankly. You know, we, <laughs> I mean, I, the upside was that I learned a lot about, you know, how to run a publishing company, but that company was not particularly successful. Um, but, you know, the lessons I learned then I, I applied later when I started Green Ring. You worked for Wizards of the Coast, and um, then at what point did you decide to get back into uh, running your own business? Uh, well, so Ronin Publishing wound down a around 1998, um, and I worked uh, for Wizards from 1998 to 2002. And it was in the middle of that that I decided to start another company, uh, basically because I, I did RPG work at Wizards for a while, but then I moved over and started working um, on their first miniatures game, which was called D&D Chainmail. And uh, mm -hmm. I sort of missed doing RPG work, so I decided to start a company on the side just to kind of, you know, keep my toe in the water, as it were. Um, and that was when the open game license thing was starting. And so um, that ended up, you know, becoming a lot more than a hobby. <laughs> I guess so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, we, yeah. you know, I started the company in the year 2000. I continued to work at Wizards for two more years. Um, but then I was laid off uh, after the Hasbro buyout. Uh, there was like waves of layoffs that happened in that period, and I, I survived several of them, but eventually I got laid off as well. But by that point, Green Renine was doing well enough that, uh, that I just stepped into doing that full time. So Gamers will probably recognize Green, Green Renine's uh, logo 
um, from a couple of different product lines. Uh, I think two that initially were the ones that attracted my eye were your Freeport line, which is um, the the sort of pirates and Lovecraftian horror right. setting um, that uh, that you guys were doing for D20. And then, of course, uh, Mutants and Masterminds. That's right. The superhero yeah. role-playing game. Well, I mean, over the years you've been doing some licensed work, and you guys have developed a lot of really good licenses. You've done DC Adventures. Um, you've, you've done the Dragon Age uh, tabletop game. Um, what are some of the other kind of big licenses you guys Well, Game of Thrones, tackled? I guess. Game of Thrones, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, over the years, we've done a bunch of different things. We did uh, Thieves' World license with Lynn Abbey. We did uh, Black Company with Glenn Cook. Uh, Nocturnals with Dan Brereton. Uh, Red Star, uh, Christian Gossett. Um, yeah, a bunch of stuff. We're going to get to Titan's Grave in just a minute, but in general, what's kind of appealing about doing a license? And uh, you know, because a lot of companies try it and then don't do it, or or try yeah. and fail. But uh, what what is it about? doing a license that you feel works for green running and for your company, especially. Um, well, so we, you know, we try to kind of balance things out so that we have some licensed stuff and then some of our own properties. And, you know, there have been periods where, where that got into imbalance, where we were doing sort of too many licensed things and, and not enough of our own. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, because we, we certainly like the, both the creativity and the freedom of creating our own properties and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, we're in a hobby that was started by fans for fans, right? And, uh, and so when you have the opportunity um, to take something, you know, that was meaningful to you and turn it into an RPG experience, you know, a lot of times you're going to do it. Um, you know, when I heard that Lynn Abbey was interested in doing a Thieves' World thing, like, I loved the Thieves' World books when I was a teenager, you know? Um, so I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that, you know? And uh, being able to do uh, DC Comics RPG, I mean, you know, who doesn't love uh, Superman and Batman, right? I mean, you know, so, of course, right. we have to jump on that. Um, and, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, like, we loved the books, and we got the license before there was an HBO show, Um which was lucky for us because, you know, there, there's no way we would have been able to afford such a license after the HBO shows. <laughs> you guys um, have a pretty good relationship with George R. R. Martin uh, licenses because you also did the Wild, R, uh, wild yes, Cards. Yes, Wild Cards, correct. Yeah, we actually signed that deal first because um, I had, when I contacted George initially, I offered to send him just some sample books. And I knew George was a huge comic fan from way back. So I made sure to send him Mutants and Masterminds and I think Freedom City, um, you know, figuring that he would dig it, you know. And, uh, and mm-hmm. sure enough, he thought that they looked great and, you know, wants to talk about wild cards. And uh, I figured, well, if we sign a wild cards deal, you know, it's going to be um, that's got to make it easier to get Game of Thrones because, you know, if you're George R. R. Martin, you don't want to deal with several different tabletop role-playing game companies. So. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Which was indeed the case. So we were able to sign wild cards, and then uh, a couple months later, we made the Game of Thrones deal. One of the uh, the big projects that you got in right now, and I just want to stop right here and plug uh, your Kickstarter real quick because we're about to talk about Fantasy Age. One of the uh, one of the games that you guys are going to publish using the Fantasy Age system is um, 
of course, Blue Rose, which is kickstarting right now. If anybody's interested, you can go to kickstarter.com and just search for Blue Rose, and you'll find the role-playing game there. Uh, we talked about it in more detail last week, so I won't go into too much of the uh, system questions about fan, uh, about Blue Rose, but I do want to talk about sort of the age system and Dragon Age and how that led to Fantasy sure. Age. So, um, real quick, was, was age something you were working on before you got the Dragon Age license in terms of a game system, or was that something you started cold when when you got the Dragon Age license and just built from the ground. Well, I mean, I had had some ideas about um, about how to do a sort of introductory class and level type fantasy game, um, but that was nothing more than just a few notes or whatever. So really, you know, I built the system once we had the Dragon Age license, and uh, and it was a matter of of coming up with with a system for it. Um, and, uh, you know, I took a trip up to uh, Edmonton to visit Bioware. And, uh, you know, this was, uh, I don't know, six months or something before Origins came out, the first Dragon Age game. And they sort of ran through the story for me and, you know, showed me some art and so on. And their systems designer told me about their system, but then added you wouldn't want to use that in a tabletop game, which I was delighted to hear because, <laughs> you know, indeed, like things a computer can do, like you probably don't want to do those at your tabletop. So, uh, you know, I was, that gave me the freedom to uh, to come up with, um, you know, a good resolution mechanic that was easy at the tabletop and not try to, to mimic the computer game too much in that regard. Now, age itself is an acronym. Yeah. That stands for... The Adventure Game Engine. Now, you, you had made sure that you were able to kind of keep that system as your own in-house system. How do you do that when you're doing a license with Dragon Age? Uh, well, basically, uh, you know, I just let Bioware know that we want to retain ownership of the underlying game system because you know, we probably would want to do other things with it. And it's not like Bioware needs a tabletop RPG system to own. So, um, so they didn't have a problem with it. Um, yeah. You know, there, you will find licensors who are sort of overreaching and, you know, just sort of feel like they have to own everything, you know. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing that Bioware was going to do with the age system on their own, right? So, yeah. yeah. Something like that did come up back in the uh, the older days with the, the DC Heroes, not the DC Adventures, DC Heroes that Mayfair Games published when uh, they decided they wanted to try and use their game system for other products. As I recall, there were some problems with dc yeah actually there was wanting. also um there was the the dc game that west end did briefly um when mm-hmm. i was negotiating for our dc game they were like oh hey by the way we have some manuscripts from this west end game do you guys want to use those for anything <laughs> we were like <laughs> no we're good we're gonna generate our own stuff but thanks it occurs to me that christopher mclaughlin actually worked on that d6 game yeah um, actually i I think one of the books that they offered us was a flash book that he wrote, I want to say. Wow. But, you know, our license was very limited. It was only for four books. So, you know, we weren't going to license for four books and have one book be about the flash, right? <laughs> like, we love the yeah. flash so much. He gets his own book. <laughs> <laughs> one quarter of our content. Yeah. Getting back to uh, age, you guys decided this year to, um, release a Fantasy Age standalone game. Yeah. Um, but did that decision come before or after 
uh, you were in touch with Will Wheaton about Titan's Grave? Um, so we had been we had started working on an age game that was going to be different than Dragon Age, um, and originally that game was going to have. Uh, it wasn't going to be as generic as Fantasy Age is, right? Fantasy Age is, mm-hmm. is just a rule set, and you can create your own world or, or pick a campaign setting that you use with it. Um, originally, we were going to do a game called Eldritch Age, uh, which was going to be the rule set plus um, a, uh, a, an attached setting. Um, so when I talked to Will and found out what he was planning... Um, it made sense for us to pivot um, and instead do Fantasy Age the way that we are doing it. Um, That way we wouldn't be trying to sell people a book with one setting and then sell them a supplement that featured a different setting, uh, which would be confusing, particularly for for people who are new to role-playing. And, you know, the whole idea of Titan's Grave is uh, hopefully we're, that we're going to get a lot of new people to try role playing games. So we want to make that experience easy for them. Cool. Let's let's talk about that for a little bit. Now I was um, backing Will Wheaton's Indiegogo campaign back when he was talking about doing season three of Tabletop, which is, um, if people aren't familiar with it, it's a uh, YouTube-based web series um, where they play different games each episode and. They use a lot of graphics, and they have a lot of special guests to really make it enjoyable to watch, and they yeah, demonstrate and how the rules it. work. <laughs> and you were on for an episode. You ran Dragon Age. Yeah. And um, it was it was fun seeing it. It was like, I know him. <laughs> and then and then uh, John Rogers, uh, who we had on the podcast a little while ago, he was also on an episode. So they ran their Indiegogo campaign, and the million-dollar stretch goal was, well, if we make this much money, we'll do an RPG show. Um, and I knew about that, but, uh, you know, and I had talked to Will previously, um, about how one might do an RPG show, but I didn't have any expectation, um, that he was going to use one of our games at that point. Um, I, I thought he might just, you know, use something else or come up with something of his own. You know, I wasn't sure. Um, so he, uh, so he called me one day and, um, and explained to me what he wanted to do and said that he, that he wanted to use the Dragon Age system, but not for the Dragon Age setting. And, you know, he wanted to know if that was something we could accommodate. So, uh, that was when we, we made that decision, um, to, uh, to sort of pivot away from Eldritch Age and do Fantasy Age instead. Um, and, you know, I was more than willing to do that because this just seemed like an amazing opportunity. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that's basically how it happened. And then, you know, Will's idea was, um, that he, you know, he didn't want to do something like tabletop where there's a different game every week. Um, because while that does show, uh, off different game systems, what he wanted to show people was what it was like to play a role-playing game campaign and how you could show character development and storytelling and all that stuff. And so for that, it had to be, you know, one game played over multiple sessions with the same people. Um, so that's how Titan's Grave took on the form that it did, um, where, you know, it's the same four players and Will is the GM um, over 10 episodes uh, of season one where they're, you know, playing a whole story. Um, and, uh, and then we... Uh, were responsible for putting together the adventures that were run on the show. 
Um, so basically Will um, and uh, his son Ryan and I uh, worked together to, to create the setting. Um, and then we called in sort of a, uh, a super team of RPG writers um, to, uh, to work on um, the various chapters of the, uh, that would map to the episodes. Um, so, uh, you know, and then we were doing all this in a very accelerated timeline. So it was a little crazy when the, you know, when yeah. adventure writers were working, they didn't really have a whole lot of world information to work off of. So, you know, there was a lot of, of give and take and collaboration and so on. Um, so yeah, it was, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bit of an odd situation. Cause I know one of the people contributing, at least uh, pinch hitting a bit towards the end was Jack Norris. And um, it's, it's, I always know something's up at Green Run Inn when Jack can't tell me anything, <laughs> because he's my lawyer, and when your lawyer can't talk to you, you know yeah. it's serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. When we uh, so it was during the shoot, uh, and you know, most books you you know you have your deadline is well you know when we need to send us to print by date X, and you know that's the deadline you need to worry about. And what was different about this is that we essentially had two deadlines. First, there was the shooting of the show, and that happened end of March, early April. Um, and then, so we had to have enough stuff for Will to to run the game then. But then after that, we, we had to then actually develop the adventures and so on. So, you know, because things were, were happening at a very accelerated pace, um, during the shoot, I was still doing development work on the chapters. So... Um, I was sitting next to the director while the shoot was going on on my laptop, and I would be doing development work on the the adventures that were going to shoot the next day. Um, and it was in the middle of that process that I had to call Jack uh, in and be like, you know what, Jack, <laughs> be super helpful if you could maybe work a couple of adventures ahead and take a pass on them before I get to them. And uh, so that was all part of that that crazy week. <laughs> very cool. Sounds like it was a very exciting uh, structure. Did you feel a lot of pressure? Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, when we put out a book, it's, um, you know, if it needs to be pushed back, well, we can do that and we're not impacting anything. And it's our money on the line, not anybody else's money on the line. And, you know, this was a, a full shoot. You know, there were um, six cameras, uh, you know, makeup people, craft services, you know, on and on and on, you know, wardrobe, you know, plus the actors and, and the whole thing. And Geek and Sunder is putting a lot of money into this. So, yeah, I felt a lot of pressure because, you know, if if things didn't go well, you know, it, somebody else's money was on the line. So, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was some stress. Um, and then the week of the shoot, it was, it was great. I mean, it's, you know, it was very much a, um, kind of a bonding experience amongst all the people involved. Cause it's just like, you're doing something that's a very high pressure, like all together. Um, so, you know, like we, you know, we met most of the cast, um, that week. And by the end of the week, you know, we were like, Oh, I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was cool. There does seem to be a lot of chemistry on the set in front of the cameras. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, that's one thing I really love about the shoot is, or about, about the show is that they, they're able to telescope in and out of role playing headspace to kind of show you 
both hear a bunch of people sitting around a table rolling dice and having fun, and then they'll like throw in a sound effect or an echo effect on somebody's voice or, or change their voice somewhat uh, for like a special, like when Will's doing a monster noise or yeah. something. Yeah. They'll they'll do a little bit of an enhancement to kind of pull you into the the storytelling, and they found a pretty deft uh, balance of bouncing in and out there and I, I really I really thought that was clever. That's something I've never seen anywhere before. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, the uh the director is a guy named Adam Lawson and he was uh really been great to work with. Um really knows his stuff and uh um yeah just uh, he's been a huge asset. I'm I'm guessing that each like game session was not necessarily filmed on a different day. How how did how did the filming relate to each game session? Uh, so it was filmed over four days. Um, okay. So basically, it was it was uh, it was generally um, three episodes a day ish, mm-hmm. you know, de- depending. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think you can generally tell when the breaks were because people's clothes change. So because <laughs> <laughs> they had you know they, had, they wore different things on different days. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we would we would hope <laughs> there was generally like three hours slotted for um, for each episode, and there's mm-hmm. ten episodes. Um, so you know, it, it it was twelve hour days every day. You know, um, so they're generally cutting down about three hours material down to one of those forty minute episodes. Yes, yeah, that's right. So yeah, like some people on on uh, the forums were commenting like, oh, you know, they don't seem to be really good at using their stunts. And it's like, well, no, it's just that they're not showing you every time that they rolled the die or perform stunts or whatever. It's like, believe me, there was plenty of stunts happening. It's just, you know, in the in the edit, the the edit is concentrating on the storytelling more than showing you a mm-hmm. blow by blow of everything. You know. I was gonna. I was kind of wondering um, if that was gonna change. Like they were going to. Um, open up and show you like a little more of the the uh, technical side of the rules as the you know as people were more invested in the story they would be more patient to to wait and see that or if it was going to remain constant. Uh, I'm not. I mean, for tabletop, they have occasionally released like longer versions of the episodes mm-hmm. so you could see more gameplay. I don't know if they plan to do that for Titan's Grave or not. It's possible. Um, if they did, you could see it more. Um, and, you know, when Will would uh, would not remember a rule, he would shout out, Voice of God, to me, and I would yell the answer <laughs> onto the set. But uh, I haven't seen that in any shows yet. So I expect you won't be... But the voice of God will not be appearing on the uh, on the actual. <laughs> Just on, only in the deleted scenes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the age system itself and um, how it might be different from one edition to another. In um, and I'm going to kind of throw in a couple of fan questions that I got off of Twitter and other sources here. Sure. Um, but uh, kind of uh, Jason Sunday wanted to know. Has Will Wheaton's gaming style had any influence on Titan's Grave? Um, well, I guess, does he mean the world, the book? The... I'm going to guess he means the setting, mm-hmm. um, but, I mean, it's kind of obvious that the show is kind of driven by his, his style. Yeah, so well, I mean... It's I'm so, guessing he means the book. Yeah. Uh, so it, it did affect the book, 
um, in that, you know, you, you can see the way Will runs um, where he asks his players a lot of questions, you know, and he tries to tease information out of them about their characters and, and things like that. And he took good notes as, as he was doing all that stuff. And he was very adept at um, taking something that in the adventure as written, um, you know, was just a, uh, you know, sort of a generic encounter and on the fly personalizing it for one of the player characters in a way that would make it more resonant for them. Um, so in the adventure as written, you know, we try to call out uh, places where you can do that, you know, where you can um, customize the game. Or we might note like, oh, when Will ran it, he did this. And you can do something similar if you want to, or, you know, you can customize it in this way. So uh, I would say yes, it certainly had an effect. Since we're talking about the Titan's Grave book, uh, Titan's Grave and Fantasy Age are going to be two separate books. Correct. Do you kind of need? Do you, um, if you wanted to run Titan's Grave, would you need both? Well, yes, because you need the, the Fantasy Age is the game rules, and then uh, the Titan's Grave book um, is the adventures from the show um, and um, sort of an overview of the setting and and some support mechanics. Ah. So it's actually like a campaign series yeah. as much as it is a setting book. Yeah. So, like, it, the, the Titan's Grave book is not, like, here's a giant campaign setting book, right? So, like, if you are thinking it's going to be, like, page after page of, well, this is what this town is like, and, you know, da-da-da, that's not what it is. Um, the focus of this is the adventure series itself. So, uh, okay. you know, there's ten chapters. Eight of the ten chapters are the adventures. Um, and then uh, chapter one is kind of an overview of the setting, and chapter two um, is uh, how you modify Fantasy Age to deal with science fantasy and, you know, some specific equipment and stuff like that. So um, I did see somebody ask somewhere if there would be, like, um, firearms in the Fantasy Age book. Uh, so Fantasy Age does introduce a new weapon group, which is Black Powder Weapons. Um, so, uh, you know, they're noted as, as being an option. They're not in every setting, obviously, but so, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to do, oh, I don't know, pirates or, <laughs> yeah. Apple, uh, you know, you can have your flintlocks and things like that. Um, Titan's Grave, um, introduces blaster weaponry. So there's, uh, there's two new weapon groups, uh, blaster pistols and blaster long arms. Since... Age is, is kind of its own in-house system. Do you guys have any plans to do any kind of third-party licensing with that? Like uh, like you do with Mutants and Masterminds, for example? Yeah, uh, so I I would like to put some sort of a program together. Um, I, I don't want to release uh, Fantasy Age under the open game license in particular, um, but I am willing to do something more like Savage Worlds does, you know, um, and so I just need the time to figure out how I want to structure it. And I just haven't had that. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> um, so probably in the fall, I will take a look at, at how I want to handle it. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, we're getting books sent to Gen Con and then there's convention mm -hmm. season. And sure. Da, 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 da. So, um, realistically, I don't think I'm going to have time to look at it until, uh, well, honestly, we'll probably talk about it at our summit, which is uh, something we do every year in October. So, Let's talk about the specifics of the engine then. Um, 
What makes the adventure game engine special? Uh, well, I think the biggest thing is the stunt system. Um, and the stunt system started as uh, is essentially a dynamic critical hit system um, where, uh, you know, a lot of uh, games will have like big charts and all this sort of stuff to, to handle that sort of thing. Um, and I came up with this system where basically, you know, in, in, in age games, when you do anything, you're rolling three six-sided dice um, and you're adding your ability and your abilities are things like, you know, strength, dexterity, constitution, and so on. Um, so uh, I first came up with the idea uh, for use in combat specifically with the idea that if you roll doubles on any of the dice, um, then, uh, then you had done a stunt and you generated a number of stunt points, um, and then you had a little sort of uh, menu of, uh, of stunt options, and you could you had to spend all the points right away, and you could combine them into different effects. So basically, you might get four stunt points uh, when you made an attack, and that would let you do, like, two two-point stunts or a three-point stunt and a one-point stunt or whatever. So the idea was you choose some effects and then you can narrate, like, the cool thing that you did to pull that off. Um, and uh, people really like that, you know, because basically when you're rolling 3D6, you've got about a 47% chance to roll doubles, which means that, you know, it's not like in other games, like, oh, there's a 1 in 20 chance something cool happens. Like, it's almost a 50% chance that something cool mm-hmm. is going to happen. Um and uh, and then you get to spend your stunt points and, and be cool. Um, and then that idea was expanded out into the uh, into other areas. So there's also spell stunts. Um, there's stunts you can use in role playing encounters and in exploration encounters as well. Um, so that that is the major feature that really sets it apart, um, I think, from uh, from other games. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I like to uh, kind of explain to people when they're asking me about Dragon Age and I, I I talk to him about the the stunt point system as a sideways critical because it's basically instead of just adding a simple bonus like a a, a value to damage or or some other thing it takes you in an unexpected direction where you can go oh now I can look at this table and maybe do something unexpected like if I can use a skirmish move to move somebody and change the tactics if you're using a map that that would be more you know that could be a really tactical thing to do. You know, it, it allows people to kind of take a success and go in an interesting direction that they maybe didn't expect when they rolled the dice. Yeah. And also it, it, you know, you can interact with the system as much or as little as you want. Like if you really don't want to think about it, you know, you can be like, fine, I do some extra damage. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But using the various stunts, you know, you can achieve, like a level of, of tactics and teamwork, you know, um, that, uh, that aren't necessarily apparent when you, you look at, um, you know, how easy the game is generally, but there's that layer of it there if you want it, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you would initially release the Dragon Age game, it was released in a series of box sets. Yes. Um, and each of those were, were based around a range of levels. Right. What led to that decision, and how is uh, how is Fantasy Age going to be different? Uh, so originally, um, you know, I mean, I had a big hope for Dragon Age that um, that with that property and the proper rule set, um, that we could, 
really take some video gamers and turn them on into the fun of tabletop RPGs, right? So mm -hmm. I wanted something that uh, was going to be, you know, relatively cheap to buy into and easy to learn and not overwhelming. And so, um, you know, I looked back at the old, um, you know, the D&D &D, like basic expert, you know, so on series of box sets from the 80s that Frank Minster did. And um, and I wanted to use that sort of model because I thought it made things very approachable. Um, and by doing a box set, we could have separate books for players and GMs, you know, so the GM could just hand players the book and be like, yes, everything in here is cool to read. You know, it also allowed us to include things like poster maps and dice. So, yeah, the first Dragon Age set really was like you get this box and it's got everything you need to start. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the idea. Um you know, the, the downside of that approach is that, that by the time you get to the third set um, and rules are scattered over a bunch of different books, you then have to remember, like, which rules and which book and da-da-da. So it's like, it's a great way to learn, but then once you've learned, you know, um, it's not as great having six different books to reference. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's why we ended up doing the Dragon Age core rule book. Um, but, you know, when we put all the material from those three sets into one book, you know, it ultimately turned into a 440-page hardback, um, which is awesomely comprehensive, but, um, you know, it's not uh, as friendly to, to newbies as it, it was in the, uh, the set one era. Yeah. As, uh, as Steve Kenson said last week, you guys like big books and you cannot lie. That is true. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, there are people who, who if you're like, hey, we're going to try a role-playing game, and you drop, you know, uh, a book that size or, like, the size of Pathfinder, which is 500-something pages on the table, and be like, yeah, we're going to do this. Like, some people are just going to run away, which is a shame. Yeah. You know, because, like, you don't need to read all that at once to play. What you actually need to read to play is relatively small, actually, so... Mm -hmm. The uh, the Fantasy Age book yeah. that you're releasing is, I think it's 140-something pages. Yeah, it's 144. 144? Yeah. What's the, uh, you know, is that going to contain everything that people need to play from beginning to end? Yeah. Yeah. Their characters? So it's, okay. it's um, uh, so it has um, characters from levels 1 to 20, you know, right in the core book. Um, mm -hmm. But it also... You know, it, it it is designed so that if you haven't role-played before, it's friendly to you. You know, it's got a lot of advice in it. You know, there's a robust GM section that talks about what the GM's jobs are and, you know, so on. Um, you know, there's a beastier chapter, so you get a bunch of monsters to start with. And then uh, then Joe Carricker wrote a um, an introductory setting, like a small local setting, and then an adventure that takes place there. Um and so it gives you something to play right out of the book. When, when I approach Dragon Age, I kind of have my idea of what the setting is already, but you're doing a more setting agnostic version of the rules. Walk me through kind of the overview of character creation in, in Fantasy Age. Um, so the biggest difference um, is, between Dragon Age and Fantasy Age is the way that you deal with, with your background. Um, so in... Dragon Age, the core thing was you picked a background, and a background was a combination of your race and your um, your social class and your sort of upbringing. 
Um, so you might be like a high caste dwarf, which means that in Orzammar, you know, you come from one of the sort of noble, you know, respected elder families and so on. And that had certain implications. Um, because Fantasy Age is attached to no particular setting, that approach obviously wasn't going to work because we, we couldn't assume all that much about the various cultures. Um, so we basically broke backgrounds out into some pieces. So the, you know, the first thing you do is you roll, uh, well, you pick a race. And uh, we just went with sort of like the, the classic fantasy races So because that, that is usable with the most number of existing campaign settings. Um, so, you know, you get dwarves, elves, gnomes, halflings, humans, mm-hmm. orcs, right? Um, so you pick a race, um, then uh, you roll for your social class, um, and you can be lower class, middle class, upper class, or an outsider. Um, and then based on your social class, you roll your actual background. And those are sort of like uh, careers in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, uh, or things like performer or pirate or soldier or merchant or so on. And the idea is, you know, this is either what you did before you went adventurer or what you trained to do. Um, and that gives you um, essentially like a skill. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- those pieces then, you know, form kind of the core of your character. And then you uh, you do all, determine all that, and then you pick a class. Um, and there's three classes. It's, uh, it's mage, rogue, and warrior. Um, and, uh, and then you get a certain class abilities, depending on what class you pick. Um, you get some equipment, and uh, you're pretty much good to go. Uh, I did have somebody on Twitter asking, uh, uh, I think it was, he was tweeting at you guys, but I figure I'd throw the question in here. Um, you, uh, in, in Titan's Grave on the show, they, they, they do some hybrids of character races. Yes. Is that, is that part of the core Fantasy Age experience? Uh, it is, and because of Titan's Grave. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I went down um, the, a few days before the shoot to do a, um, a character creation day. Um, with uh, Laura Bailey, Allison Hayslip, and Yuri Lowenthal. Um, and so we all sat in a room with Will and uh, Adam, the director, and talked over the setting and their characters and what they want to do and so on. And, um, and that's where they went a little crazy with the idea of, of like, I want to be like half dwarf, half elf, or, you know, Yuri's character is half Saurian, half orc, you know. Yeah. Um, which, if you watch the show, you can see Hank Green being like, how does that even work? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, because of that, I made sure to include a section in um, in the core rulebook that explains uh, if you want to have a mixed heritage character, how you do that, which cool. mechanically is quite simple. Uh, so. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, now, uh, we know that you've got Titan's Grave and, and Fantasy Age coming up, as well as the, uh, the Dragon Age hardcover, uh, the Ultimate Edition, um, which you can get from Green Onan's website, or, or you can pre-order it from Green Onan's website, or uh, um, actually through the Bioware store. Um, yeah, if you want to get, the, the Ultimate Edition is like the super fancy version mm-hmm. of the Dragon Age Core rulebook. There's also a, a standard version uh, which is uh, is sixty dollars instead of a hundred, and you know it doesn't have the nice slip case and all that stuff, but uh, it's also than a hundred dollars. But I know that the PDF is now out for that the, the yes. Dragon Age Combined Edition. So if anybody yes. wants to grab that that four hundred page digital masterpiece, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. It's it's really great. I'm really looking forward to the, to getting my hardcover 
Do you have anything that you're ready to announce yet in other age products? So we have, uh, you know, we're doing some follow-ups to um, to Dragon Age, obviously. Um, we're going to be doing a new um, Game Master's kit because the uh, the old one has not only been out of print for quite some time, but um, that was done when the only thing released was uh, Dragon Age Set 1. Um, so uh, we're going to do a new screen that, that has... Uh, you know, all the, the core rule stuff on it. Um, and then a brand new adventure as well. Um, uh, that's So that'll be the follow-up for the Dragon Age core rulebook. Um, and um, I don't recall if we've announced the next thing, so I'm going to defer on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the specific question I had from somebody was, will there be any sci-fi age products? But I guess it's too soon to talk about anything that might be there. Um, well, I want to do something like Space Age, right? I mean, I, would, mm-hmm. I, I love sci-fi. Um, I, at some point, do want to do a science fiction version um, because, uh, you know, I mean, at this point, we're going to be publishing three different fantasy games, right? There'll be Dragon Age, Fantasy Age, and A Song of Ice and Fire role-playing. So um, right now we have zero science fiction games, so uh, I would like to do that. But that's probably two years away, you know, at earliest. So. I, would love to, I would love to be involved in a sci-fi role-playing game as a playtester or anything. That just sounds great. Well, yeah, we just have, we have some, some core things to figure out. Like, you know, do we want to do something like Fantasy Age, but for sci-fi, which is sort of, you know, deliberately designed to be generic? Or really, do we want to build out a cool setting and release a, you know, a game that is purpose-built for that? You know, mm-hmm. That's that's kind of a, you know, core question to figure out. It's always, always a big decision, especially when uh, uh, so many people kind of take a game and, and usually hack it to begin with. I mean, so yeah. many people, when they sit down and play, it's like, who are we making this game for? Well, and science fiction has some some challenges in that it it encompasses so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like fantasy, I think because of D and D has like kind of a default style to it, and um, science fiction not so much. You know, like science fiction can can range greatly from you know really hard you know, technical sci-fi to, you know, crazy science fantasy with magic and anything in between. So uh, doing a kind of generic book, I think, is harder. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of Titan's Grave itself? I mean, you said there's going to be 10 episodes? Yes. Is is there any hope or talk yet of doing a season two? Um, well, we hope to, yes. <laughs> um, I mean... Ideally, you know, um, in, I don't know, eight months or six months or something like that, we'll be back down in Burbank, you know, with the cast filming season two. But that ultimately is is Geek and Sundry's decision, right? Right. Uh, I have no insight into, um, like, how the show is monetized and, you know, what it's going to require out of them to to. Um, budget a season two I, I just don't know I don't know what you know what it was what, how will this be considered a success in their eyes and um, and geek and sundry is you know they were um, acquired by legendary pictures so they're now part of a larger organization um, which on the upside you know is a movie studio um, and they also own the nerdist and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, so it's a good home for them but um, yeah I don't know 
uh, how they make that decision. But I'm I'm very keen for them to <laughs> yeah <laughs> to come back to us and go yeah we're going to do it all again. That's, that uh, would be great. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I mean, if if nothing else, I, I certainly would like to do a a larger setting book on Titan's Grave, um, and I think that can happen whether or not the the show gets a second season. So. I want to talk about how we're releasing Fantasy Age and Titan's Grave. Just oh, please. Yes. Get a lot of questions about that. Sure. Um, so um, we're sending um, Fantasy Age and Titan's Grave to print like today, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and they will debut at Gen Con and then be in stores in August. Fantastic. Um, normally, when we release a book, um, we... Uh, when we're done with it, we put it up for pre-order and we release the PDF and you can pre-order the physical book and you can buy the PDF for $5 if you do that um, as an upgrade instead of the normal PDF price. Um, and so we're going to be doing that with Fantasy Age, um, you know, in a week or two. Um, you'll be able to buy the, the PDF and, and pre-order it. Um, so you'll be able to see those rules pretty soon. Um, we would normally do that with Titan's Grave, except that uh, because this has the adventures that the group is playing through Spoilers. on the Spoilers. We don't want to spoil the ship. Um, so because of that, we're, we are not going to be selling the PDF of Titan's Grave early. Um, we'll be starting to sell it the first day of Gen Con, basically. Okay. Uh, and there, uh, when Gen Con happens... Um, there still, I think, will be two episodes left of Titan's Grave that haven't aired yet. Um, oh. So they're, you know, people can still be jerks and spoil it if they want to be jerks, but hopefully <laughs> we'll have some respect. I think you called it out earlier when you said yeah. that uh, a good GM, you know, uh, adjusts the, the story on the fly. And uh, Will actually talked about it. I think it was in the, it was either in the issues episode zero or the first episode where he was talking about how you could put the same adventure in front of a different group of players and get a different, you know, completely different experience. So, yeah. Yeah. And the thing to remember about the Titans great book is that, you know, because there were three hours of play that were condensed down to a 45 minute show. Um, there are encounters that were played that you don't see on the show. And there's also encounters that we designed that weren't on the show. So even though you're getting the adventures that you saw on the show, there is material in there that even if you watch the show, you have never seen before, um, you know, as well as notes for how to customize things for for your own group. Because the idea is not like, well, you're just going to imitate what they did. It's that you take the story and make it your own. Yeah, I don't know why I skimmed over the, when is this coming up? Because I know I... <laughs> <laughs> Probably because I've been nagging Jack to give me an early peek at it. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah, Nicole is forever answering these tweets, you know, individual tweets from people being like, is this going to be a book? And it's just like, yes, it is. Here's the link. You know, <laughs> so, uh, get that information out there. Yeah. And uh, and actually, I was looking at the Green Onion website. You guys have you can add them to your wish list now, and you had some prices listed. Um, the yeah. two the two of them together are about the expense of what one usually spends on like a, a setting and rule system like combined book. Uh, so it's a really good deal to get both books. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fantasy Age is thirty dollars. Titan's Grave is twenty five. They're both hardback. Um, and Titan's Grave comes with a double-sided poster map, 
um, that has the setting and then this uh, the city of Nostora um, mapped out by Andy Law and you know Andy's a fantastic cartographer. Yeah, excellent. Very we did cool. Our, our Freeport map in the uh, the big Pathfinder Freeport book uh, we had that came out this year. So. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, good map ma- map makers are so hard to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's so good when you do find one. But just a, a quick you know reminder: what what's coming up with mutants and masterminds? Uh, so we started um, a new web series, um, a PDF series. Sorry. Um, uh, called Rogues Gallery, and it's basically you know a villain a week uh, designed by Chris McLaughlin, um, and uh, we just put the third one of those up this week, um, so that'll be a continuing series, um, and then in a couple of weeks we should be getting back to the Atlas of Earth Prime, which we started, but then basically it was overcome by events, um, <laughs> we had to take a pause there, um, and. Uh, and so we'll be starting that uh, PDF series up again. Um, and then, uh, you know, once Hal clears his plate with um, Fantasy Age and Titan's Grave and all that stuff, um, we can finally put uh, the Cosmic Handbook into production because um, that is uh, the text is ready. We just need to art direct it and then lay it out. Um, so uh, that should be the next thing coming up uh, book wise for Mutants and Masterminds. And then, you know, uh, work has been continuing on Freedom City in the background, um, but um, it is, well, that's not going to come out this year. I just (laughs) (laughs) cannot foresee how that could happen. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Understood. Understood. The, um, you know, the the wheels can only turn so fast. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, it's it's a lot easier to be forgiving of that when you start actually publishing stuff and you see <laughs> how hard yeah. it is, how challenging it is. No, I mean, you know, I understand that people get frustrated with our release schedule because, you know, frankly, it does slip and slide a lot. Um, but, um, you know, it is challenging to coordinate all this stuff, uh, particularly with the budgets that we're dealing with <laughs> um, and, you know, the amount of work each individual person in the company is trying to deal with at the same time. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, we'd rather a book be good than on time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's like, there's an old saying, right, that a late book is late until it comes out. A bad book is bad forever. So, yep. you know, we... <laughs> <laughs> We would rather make it right um, than uh, than just shove it out to, to meet a deadline. So very cool. But, and yeah, you guys have and and I think that uh, understanding that a lot of those pushbacks happen because of Titan's Grave. I can forgive a lot of it. Uh, Titan's Grave is is a really cool experience, and I'm glad people are enjoying it. Well, and it wasn't only that because we also agreed last year um, to do design work for Wizards of the Coast on D and D Fifth Edition. Mm-hmm. So. In the midst of everything else, um, Steve Kenson was leading a team designing a super adventure called Out of the Abyss um, that's going to come out in September. So on top of all the other stuff that we've done, we've also designed a 256-page D&D super adventure. So. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, now, now is that coming out under the Green Ronin label? Uh, uh, no, Wizards is publishing it. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it'll have our logo on it instead. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. Before I before I send you off, uh, is there anything else we wanted to uh, give a shout out to? Um, the Supreme Court for doing the right thing finally. Yeah. 
yes, I'll echo that. I'll echo that sentiment. Um, yeah. That was that. It's been a it's been a big month. <laughs> it, it has been. Yes. It feels it's, like uh, it's still June. Um. <laughs> well, you know, it's weird because for this entire year, you know, every day I'm sort of like, well, if I could just get past this thing, then after that things will calm down. And it's like July now, and nothing's calmed down. <laughs> nothing's gonna calm down until maybe September, you know. So, <laughs> last night, you know, it was like 12:30 a.m., and I was working on Titan's Grave corrections, and I'm like, of course, of course. Because <laughs> you. Know, so what? Uh, what music do you usually listen to when you're working on on corrections at at 12:30 at night? um i used to listen to music uh when i did almost everything um and you know for me it's almost always punk rock so yeah um but you know over time um i've i've found that it's it's better for my concentration most of the time to actually not listen to music if i'm doing something that requires focus like writing or you know proofreading or something like that Uh, yeah Probably also kinder to your neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my uh, my studio is uh, is in the basement of an old brewery, uh, so. Well, there you go. Yeah, I don't have uh, I don't have you know it's not it's not a residential neighborhood, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'll be seeing you at Gen Con. Yeah. Yeah, and we're uh, we're sharing a booth with Geek and Sundry, um, and uh, Will Wheaton will be there. He and I are doing a, um, a seminar um, about Titan's Grave at Gen Con, and they've given us a room that seats 1,100 people. Wow. So hopefully <laughs> we will have an awesome crowd. So, um, again, thank you so much. And for everyone listening, if you're interested in checking out more uh, Vigilance Press stuff, we have the, the free podcast. Um, you should be able to find us on iTunes. You should be able to uh, find links on the Vigilance Press website, which is www.vigilancepress.com. And, of course, um, we're also releasing our own products. Um, we just released our first of a, a semi-weekly series, um, Rogues, Rivals, and Renegades, for Mutants and Masterminds, published by, uh, which is which is the system published by Green Running. We're doing our third-party version, and... Um, if you want to check that out, uh, we have two characters out there now. Um, we have the Krampus, who was released around Christmas time last year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then um, we also had um, uh, this. This week was Jack Norris's uh, Trainwreck, um, who is uh, um, essentially falls into the rivals category, where she's uh, she has the powers and the the desire to be a superhero, but due to extenuating circumstances, winds up being more of a problem than a solution so um and and there's some nice fiddly bits to her background and then kind of the true nature of her background that kind of let you customize how she relates to your game world which is pretty fun so um and uh, next week we're going to try and do something special for shark week if we can get the pdf done in time if not i'll have uh, i'll have another uh, Rogue's Rival and Renegades out in its place, but we're hoping to do our uh, our aquatic character um, for, for for Shark Week. We, we may also have some Shark Week content because our our director of e publishing Sparky was really hot to do Shark Week stuff. So. 
<laughs> He's been trying to, to pull together some of our appropriately themed material for short weeks. So. Nice, nice. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks again, Chris, and to everyone listening. Until next time, stay vigilant.